Please do be seated. Let us come to God in prayer before we think about His Word. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we pray for You to come amongst us and soften our hearts to the Word of God. Holy Spirit, come and shape our lives under the rule of Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, with power and deep conviction, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week, we saw the next phase of President Putin's plans of invasion for Ukraine. The world waits now with bated breath to see what will transpire, that this is happening on our doorstep, that this is happening to a country that really poses and seeks no threat, no issue with Russia. I think it leaves us all a little dumbfounded. Whatever the underlying motivations, whatever the end goal, what is clear to everyone is that we are seeing a world leader, a ruler of a nation, exercise his power in some of the worst ways imaginable. Now, Putin is not the only world leader we could critique for their misuse of power. And so, in general, I suspect we have a rather large distrust of leaders and the rule of leaders. So, when we come to a passage like the one today, we might engage it with a whole lot of baggage, a lot of distrust and criticism. What is more, our culture has vastly changed from Paul's day. In his day, slavery was part and parcel of everyday life. And shame on us, it is still a part of modern-day life, but not to the same extent. And the dynamics in families and the role of women have changed as well. This means that we face a temptation as we approach our passage today. We face the temptation to rubbish it, or ignore it, or skip over it, or say it's an example of a text that exhorts a misuse and abuse of power and helps to maintain such power imbalances and structures. But if we go with that vein of thought and do not take the time to dig into these verses, we will miss out what God was doing in that day and what God is seeking to do in our day through His Word. Changing the world, one life, one mind, one heart at a time. And to get to grips with this passage, we first need to appreciate the guiding thought to Paul's writing, which is this. The rule of Jesus shaping the lives of His people is good. The rule of Jesus shaping the lives of His people is good. Maybe you think, oh, here goes Scott picking another idea out the thin air. So let me explain where I get this from. Whenever we approach Scripture to try and understand what the Bible is teaching us, there's a number of things we need to do, and two of the things are this. First, we need to identify and look out for what is repeated. What's the words that are repeated? What are the ideas that are repeated? Second, we need to be aware of the context of the writing and of the wider context of the Scriptures. So, 
what's repeated? Paul speaks of the peace of Christ, the rule of Christ, the name of the Lord Jesus. There's a repetition there. The name of the Lord is repeated six times in six verses. And again, there's a reference to Jesus as master in heaven. So clearly, whatever Paul is getting at, Jesus is central to this. Jesus is shaping this passage. What's the context? The context, as we heard last week, is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God shaping our lives, clothing us to be fitting for the kingdom of God, both now and for eternity. And so, it's the rule of Jesus shaping the lives, not of society, but of his people. Paul is writing to God's people, writing about how their shared activities help to shape their lives. So, he says, we are shaped by the work and message of Jesus. Actually, he says the peace and message of Jesus, but I'll get to that in a moment, because I think he's speaking of the work and message of Jesus. We're, shared, we're shaped by our shared activities, our thankfulness, our teaching, our exhortation, our uh, singing together. All this shapes us, shapes us around Jesus. And then Paul talks of being shaped by the reality of Jesus in those later verses. Children are to do what pleases the Lord. You can't please someone who doesn't exist. And so it's being aware of the reality of Jesus. He is real. This is not just some guy in an old book or a history lesson. He is real. He is there. Or verse 23, that whatever we do, we do it as working for the Lord. And that masters are to be mindful. We've all to be mindful that, that we all have a master, a Lord in heaven. And we will be accountable to him. We are shaped and to be shaped by the reality of Jesus. And so what's guiding Paul's thinking is that the rule of Jesus is shaping and is to shape the lives of his people. And I've added that that's good. I think it's there in Paul's writing. But you might be wondering, well, is it good? Really? Like if the Bible includes such passages and such writings about wives submit to your husbands and slaves, the, the whole regime of slavery doesn't get challenged in the Scriptures, is the rule of Jesus really good? Well, let's go back to context. This God who made Himself known in Jesus, He wants to give grace and peace and strength to His people. He's already given hope and redemption. He's provided the means of forgiveness of sins at his own expense. That he died on the cross, nailed to that cross, even when we were enemies of him in our minds. Chapter 1 of Colossians. This same God who we're not enemies with now if we have faith in Jesus, this same God has overcome the enemies we still face of death and sin and the devil, and he did it for sake of you and me. This is the God who did that, that we might, chapter 3, have life in him, and our life might be hidden in him so that it is secure, that we are part of his kingdom now and will be for all eternity. This is the God who inspired such writings. This is the God whose kingdom we're called to shape being. This is the God who invites us to allow Him to shape our lives. And it is good. And for our good. 
The wider scriptures also speak of the kingdom of God. There's too many scriptures to pick on. But I'll stick with Paul, who says in Romans, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God, the rule of Jesus, is good. He seeks to bring righteousness, peace, and joy to your life, to this world. That is his ultimate end goal. So Jesus is no Putin. He's not even a Boris. He's not akin to that boss that you know that was grumpy and dictating to you in the workplace. Jesus is good. And his desire to shape our lives is for our good. So how are you going to approach his word today? and the invitation to let him rule in your life? Will it be with trust in his goodness? Or will it be with criticism or a weariness? Maybe even a proudful disposition. Because it's so easy to think we know best, isn't it? It has been the plague of humanity since the beginning of time. Go back to the beginning of the biblical narrative, Adam and Eve, one thing not to do, don't eat from the tree. And yet, they end up doubting the goodness of God. God's holding something back from you. And so they decide they know what's better, and they disregard God. They doubt His goodness, and we and they have paid the price ever since. So how will you respond to God's word, God's rule, and his invitation today? Is it going to be with trust? Trust in his goodness. Trust to allow the rule of Jesus to shape your life. Now, Paul, in particular, in our verses today, wants the rule of Jesus to shape our relationships. And he names three areas of relationships, relationships within the church, relationships within the family, and then the master-slave relationship, those we are subject to or those who are subject to us. And so beginning with the relationships within the church, Paul says in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Now when we read this verse we probably end up thinking about feelings and about us individually. Because as a society, we are very feelings-driven and we are very individualistic. So we end up thinking that Paul is talking about some subjective peace that we have to let somehow rule in our hearts and that's often to guide our think thinking and our feelings and our decisions. If you've got peace in your heart, then you're good. It's probably how we often approach such language. But it's not what Paul means. Paul, in the letter to Ephesians, talks about the dividing wall between peoples, between Jew and Gentile. And, and Galatians talks between not just Jew and Gentile, but male and female, slave and free. There was this dividing wall. But now through Jesus, through His work on the cross, there is no division. There needs to be no division that we can be reconciled to Him and to one another. And that is the peace He has won. We are called to one body. We are one body. 
That is the peace that has been secured. And for that peace, for the people who make up that peace, from all the different backgrounds of life, we are to be thankful. Yes, we need to be more thankful in general, but that's not what Paul is to be saying here. It's in the context of being a body, of recognizing that the people sitting around us, the people who make up our fellowship, the people who make up the Christian body beyond just our local congregation are people Jesus died for, who were worthy, apparently, for him to die for. And that is to shape our thinking. That is to shape our relating. That is to shape the church. Now, how do we keep that thought? How do we maintain such an outlook or challenge behavior and ways of relating that are against that kind of thought? Well, Paul says in verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Did you notice that it's addressed to you? As you teach and admonish, not you the minister, not you Paul the apostle, you, every one of us has a part to play in this. We've all to do that as we talk about our faith as we point one another to Jesus, as we sing the songs of faith, we remind ourselves about the reality of Jesus, about who He is, about His will and His teaching, about His work on the cross. And so we remember how to relate to one another and we allow the gospel to shape our living. So who's the person in church that gets under your skin? It might be the minister. Who's that person that's voice, oh, just grates you the wrong way? Who's that person with the outlook that's just so different from you and you can't understand them? Who's that person whose demeanor oh, just gets you down? Who's that person with a theology that you think is dated or heretical or just doesn't belong here? Maybe it's time to be thankful for them. And how can we talk about our faith so that we keep the gospel central, that we keep pointing each other back to what Jesus has done and of his relevance in our lives and his presence in our lives? So, for example, when you are meeting during the week or after the service, maybe ask each other a question, what did you take away from Sunday? I think there's always something to take away. I'm sure I've told the story before that when I was a young Christian, um, I, I, we went, I was on a summer mission and we went to a service and I thought this old minister was talking the biggest lot of nonsense and I didn't understand a word and I just had a really hard, prideful heart and I ranted and raved after the service and my friend Laurie, same age as me, but being a Christian for a bit longer, uh, he just said, well, this is all the stuff that I got. <laughs> and I, was I have been challenged since then that you might not have agreed with my message or whoever's preaching, but there will be something you can take away from the hymn, from a prayer, from a reading. So focus on that. Maybe God's got something in that for you. And then share that with someone else so that you build up their faith. Don't just keep it to yourself. Or maybe say to them, how can I pray for you this week? Could we try and ask that question a bit more? 
amongst one another? Because when you ask that question, not just, oh, I'm thinking about you, or how's your week going? When we ask, how can I pray for you? We're reminding one another, there is a God we can pray to, that we're not on our own, that this world might be looking like it's going to hell in a handbasket, but there is a God, and we can call to Him, and He cares for us. We are called to be a people who in our relationships point each other to Jesus, keep the gospel central to all our relationships and all our decision-making. So that was the easy bit. What about the rest of the passage that talks about those apparently maybe slightly dated, very tricky verses relating to husbands and wives, fathers and children, slaves and masters? Well, I'm not going to share an awful lot of hard and fast points of application on that section, I'm afraid. Because in many ways, we don't know the context of Paul's meaning here. That when he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, or husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh to them, what is Paul meaning? And what is the context he writes into? Is he, is he mindful? Because the commentaries are just all over the place on this, um, and I generally have a kind of, I don't read every commentary, but a fair number. Is he referring to a, a, the situation like in Corinth, where spouses were thinking about divorcing their other spouse because one was a believer and one wasn't a believer, and they were worried, well, oh, is this marriage a bad thing? Is God against my marriage? And Paul writes to say, no, stay in your marriage. Is that what it means to submit to your husband in that context? Or is, is Paul aware of a kind of behavior that is, that is wrong and unhealthy? Is there manipulation going on on the, the, the side of the wife, maybe, or something? Uh, one or two commentators said that. Because there's that old adage, and I'd never normally quote this because my wife would probably kill me. Um, the, the man might be the head of the wife or the family, but the wife is neck. She's in control, really. Literally, there are books written on the subject matter here, no matter which side of the debate you go for, whether you think there is or is not a role for a husband to play a leadership function within a marriage. But let's notice a few things at least, a few things that need named. First of all, Paul says that wives are to submit, not obey. It's children who are to obey parents. And so there is no green light here for husbands to be controlling, manipulative, or violent. And Paul also qualifies his statement that it is only as far as fitting in the Lord. What is fitting in the Lord? Well, let me just give you one example that we've already looked at, that verse in Romans, that the kingdom of God is one of righteousness, peace, and joy. And if there is none of that in your marriage, if there are things happening in your marriage that are meaning that there is not righteousness, peace, or joy, then there is something going wrong there. Also, to go back to the letter of Ephesians, there's much more teaching there on this relationship between husband and wife. And, and Paul says that the relationship between husband and wife echoes the relationship between Jesus and His church. That he says that as Christ loved the church, 
Husbands are to love their wives. But equally, the church is to submit to Jesus, to his rule, his leadership, that he is head of the church. Now, submission in the context of Jesus in the church is an act of trust. To submit to Jesus is an act of trust. So is Paul simply meaning that wives have to trust their husbands? To trust that their husbands will put them first and seek their best. Is that what he means? Then there's what Paul says to husbands, that they are to love their wives and not be harsh to them. And in a culture where women were seen as little more than property, as a thing, that they were belittled by all faiths, Paul is being very countercultural. He is really shaking things up. And so, though his words may seem dated, aren't they still relevant today too? Which husband here loves their wife as Jesus loved the church? How many of us men, whether by our words or by the looks upon our faces or in our body language, have communicated harshness to our wives this week? Whatever Paul's getting at here, ultimately in all these relationships, it is about the gospel shaping them. And husbands and wives, whether married or single, with children and a slave-master relationship or in the church, every relationship is to be shaped by the gospel. So is it. And with our children, either your children or the children who attend church, do we communicate the gospel? So, for example, do we communicate to our children, well, you're only loved, you're only appreciated, we only want you here if you do as we tell you, as you obey our rules? Or do we communicate differently that you're loved as you are, not as you ought to be, not as you should have been, not as you might become, you're loved as you are? Because isn't that the gospel? That Jesus loved you despite you being a sinner. Despite you telling God to take a hike. Despite you being an enemy of God. Colossians chapter 1. In your mind, God died for you and me. That's the gospel. How is that gospel worked out in your relationships is Paul's point. So where might you embody the gospel and so embody the rule of Jesus in your relationships? Now, despite what I've said, despite the various caveats I've put on it, some of us will still feel that Paul did not go far enough. Some of us will think that his teaching here propped up slavery for hundreds of years and that it still props up the subjugation of women. And whilst, whilst I would and will counter such claims, we do need to acknowledge that the church has a shameful past when it comes to slavery and a shameful past when it comes to the treatment, the care, and the place of women. Too many a man, too many a slave owner 
has taken these verses out of context and used them to justify sinful behavior. Men and women are equals in the sight of God, made in the image of God, loved equally by God. Additionally, the church has been woefully slow to change, seen more to be playing catch up to wider society, and then be maybe dragged into ways that are not of God because we are playing catch up. We were called by Jesus to be salt and light, to be salt and light, and too often we have lost our saltiness because salt not only preserves, but it brings out flavor. Let us go back to Romans 14. What is the flavor of the kingdom of God? Righteousness, peace, and joy. We have not brought that out in society. And so I think it's right that as a church we now have a gender-based violence team. And you might think that that is just a pandering to society where the church feels obligated to have such activities. But I see it as part of our discipleship, as part of what it means to pursue Jesus and embody the kingdom. And I'll explain why in a moment. And I'm glad that we now have that team. It's part of the discipleship team, rightly so. And in the coming months, we hope to, to roll out some opportunities for you all, if you wish, to engage with that, to understand more about gender-based violence. Why is this an issue? Why, what does it lead to? And how can we do something about that? And I encourage you not to become skeptical about it and think it is a pandering to society, but to see it as crucial to your discipleship in our day and to come and invest your time learning about gender-based violence. Because here's the thing. The changes that have come since Paul's day in relation to men and women, slaves and free, it all came about because of Jesus' teaching and example. And it was built upon by the early church, and yes, it was built upon by Paul. Paul's teaching as it relates to home life, as it relates to the slave-master relationship, was vastly different to his culture. To not see people as things, as property, to not only value men and the free, in Paul's day, he was incredibly egalitarian. He would have been vilified for such a position. And whilst you may think he did not go far enough, I found this quote helpful in one of the commentaries this week. Paul does not protest against the institution of slavery or the dynamic between men and women, and we should admit that. His approach is subtler. He has found a fixed point on which to stand, from which to move the world. Slaves, too, are human beings. Slaves, too, are people Jesus died for. Women are people who Jesus died for. All are loved. All are people. All are valued. And Paul's teaching began to change the world. Maybe not fast enough for you. Maybe too slowly. Oftentimes not appreciated. Oftentimes ignored or thwarted. But it was the Christian faith which gave the impetus to value people differently. It was the Christian faith 
which would lay the foundation upon which wider change would come in society and to the dynamics between men and women. From the Christian faith, things began to move in the world. So what about your life and your context? Where are we called to put the work and message of Jesus into practice in our relationships such that the world moves? It might not seem like much. With all that's going on in the news, it might not seem like much. But every choice matters. Every choice moves the world that little bit more towards the kingdom of God. Because did you notice all the little words of action in the passage? Let, teach, sing, do it all, submit, love, obey, provide. They're all action words. And they're all words that require you and me to make a choice, to exert our will, our power, not to dominate as a Roman dictator does, a Russian dictator does, but to use our power to allow Jesus to rule in us and through us that the hallmarks of his kingdom might be seen in our day, in our lives, in our relationships, in our community, that then the rule of Jesus might shape more and more lives for the good. It might not seem like much, but every choice is a choice to help the world move. And that happens one life at a time, one mind at a time, one heart at a time. I pray that we make that choice today and every day. May it be so.